You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. And I'm joined by two other guests this morning. Across the table from me is Howard Quatch, who you heard a couple episodes ago. Uh, ago. He will uh, be sharing a little bit more about his testimony this morning and um, about some of his background, and we look forward to hearing from him. And we also have uh, Becca Locos here as well, who was here uh, for the first couple episodes. Becca is our youth assistant and administrative assistant here at Shady Grove, and we're also supporting her and her seminary studies. And so glad that both Howard and Becca could join us this morning. In just a moment, we'll be getting into Mark chapter 5. So if you want to have your Bibles open, if you're able to have those out, uh, that would be great if you want to follow along. But we Totally understand that many of you are probably driving or doing some other chores, and so we'll try to be very specific uh, with our verse references and stuff so you can follow along even if you don't have a Bible open. So uh, before we get to Mark chapter 5, though, we're going to hear a bit from Howard. Uh, So Howard has uh, a great uh, backstory, come to know the Lord and and all that. And so, Howard, why don't you tell us a little bit about that testimony? How did you come uh, to know the Lord? Uh, Well, um... There's a combination of like many things, starting from high school, uh, where I was first um, uh, exposed to the gospel uh, through members at Chinese Bible Church, uh, right off of Muncaster Mill. I grew up in a non-Christian home, uh, so I think uh, at that point, I didn't really know who Moses was, (laughs) let alone uh, the nuances of the gospel. But it wasn't until I graduated from college where uh, one of my cousins, who was a member at Covenant Life Church at the time, uh, he invited me out to the Alpha Outreach Program. Mm. And uh, at that that point, um, because I had attended uh, Bible studies and Friday night fellowships and retreats, you know, up to that point, um, at Alpha, I didn't learn anything particularly new, mm. but I did feel something different, and that really was the warmth and the welcome of the folks um, mm. who were serving and attending Alpha. Mm. And How what, old were you about about the time yeah, you were attending Alpha? 20, 24, I okay. think. Yeah. And uh, this is where I was working at. AMS CGI Federal. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so when, uh, when, I, uh, when I attended, I think it was the third week in, I was really enjoying it, where during uh, the small group session, where uh, you have a chance to talk about whatever message was shared, one of the, one of the I think, uh, members, one of the folks that were serving, mm. asked a set of uh, rhetorical questions. Um, I don't think they were meant to be rhetorical. They're I'm sure they were sincere. They were kind of like the way of the master kinds of questions, mm-hmm. uh, Kirk Cameron kinds of questions. Are you? Have you ever told a lie? That kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. So he went through that, and uh, when he got to how many times do you have to sin to be a sinner, and then uh, I, in front of the group, kind of half jokingly said, "Well, then, like I'm, I'm guilty." I, I, I don't remember saying that. I think uh, to keep it PG, I said it. Uh, I said something similar to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my half joke was what I believe the Holy Spirit used. Mm-hmm. Like, in that moment, I felt 
finally, uh, this conviction of not just sinning, but being a sinner. Mm. And then right away, right away, it wasn't words in my mind, but right away I, I knew and felt why I needed Jesus. Mm. And uh, <laughs> just to poke fun at the uh, theological term, his grace was irresistible in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's, uh, that's how I came to know Christ, or at least that's how I came to faith. And then subsequently, finally obeyed a year later, mm. I was baptized. Mm. And where were you baptized? I'm sorry? Where were you baptized? At Covenant Life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Full immersion. Yeah. Got fully wet. Yeah. The whole yeah, thing. The whole thing. Yep. But now you're here with us Presby folks. So. Yeah. <laughs> Which doesn't preclude immersion, but at least folks don't have to hold their noses when they get dumped. Yeah. Uh, and you were at Covenant Life for a number of years. Is that where you, that's where you met Sarah? Right. right. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's where. Um, and so you were at Covenant Life for a number of years. Uh, so uh, you come from a Chinese family, uh, second generation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so we've spoken about this a little bit in the past, some of the just unique, maybe cultural challenges or not even necessarily challenges, but your just unique cultural experience yeah. being a Christian, uh, from a Chinese family. So I wonder if you could speak a little bit to that of like, maybe what has made that experience unique or what have been actual challenges, uh, for you. Um, sure. Um, when, when thinking about the cultural aspect, I think there, there are two, like two aspects that I'm, um, juggling. Um, I think about it in terms of cultural background, which I think is the question you're asking. Mm-hmm. And then there's also on the other side, the cultural foreground, which mm. I can kind of go into detail there a little bit, but my cultural background, um, is, is that I'm second generation, um, Chinese, but more precisely Chinese Vietnamese. Okay. Um, my parents, both, um, you know, ethnically Chinese were born and raised in Vietnam. Okay. And, um, and that aspect is important because, um, they, among other Southeast Asian, ethnically Chinese folks were part of the, what you can probably Wikipedia, the Chinese, um, dispersion, right. Um, the diaspora and, uh, folks that don't live on mainland. And for those folks, um, they, uh, they maintained their Chinese identity, um, through, um, and their distinctions through like tradition, uh, things that they did. Uh, so for example, growing up, uh, we, uh, we have like little places in the house uh, dedicated to particular gods and goddesses. And like, this sounds kind of weird to say this, but like an altar for mm. uh, for those gods and goddesses. And then also a, a place dedicated to honor, remember um, our ancestors. Mm. And we still have those in the house in which I, I live because um, I'm living in my parents' house right now, uh, the house I've been in since elementary school, third grade. Mm. And, um, and so one of the, so with that background, um, the challenge or question that questions that I'm regularly confronted with and need to hash out and pray for lots of wisdom comes from, um, comes especially during, or has come during funerals Mm. 
and Chinese holidays, right? Uh, lunar holidays, funerals um, are a combination of just like just like Chinese religion, uh, which is a combination of Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, mm -hmm. um, and even Chinese folk religion. Uh, going to a funeral, there are a lot of things that you know your your Christian spidey senses start tingling and wonder <laughs> wonder like um, it's easy to uh, theoretically s stop like I mean not participate but then when it's family members when it's mm -hmm. my dad who died and like how do we how do I follow Jesus both in terms of not participating in certain things, but then also honor Jesus by honoring my parents. Mm. Um, not easy. Yeah. Um, incense at home, uh, delicious roast pork and fruits and veggies uh, on tables dedicated to um, uh, certain gods and even my dad himself. Right? Yeah. Um, uh, that's a question I've had to wrestle with, with yeah. especially with Sarah. Um, yeah. So if anyone wants to have a lesson in contextualization, just come on over to my house um, yeah. during Chinese holiday. Um, we'll wrestle through 1 Corinthians uh, 8 and Romans chapter 13 together over a delicious Chinese meal. Yeah, I remember, I just really appreciate you being vulnerable about that. Um, I remember one of the first weeks that you had, really started attending Shady Grove and being a part of our community group. I think we were kind of talking a little bit about um, not even cultural contextualization, but I think probably racial reconciliation and things. And you were kind of just like, you guys really want to make this real? Like come to my house during, you know, a holiday and we'll make this a real conversation. And I just like, man, like, yes, let's get to work. <laughs> you know, I just really appreciated your, you know, your honesty and vulnerability in that. So um, you mentioned background. What about foreground? I'd be curious what you mean yeah. by that. Uh, my uh, one of the questions that uh, I uh, I regularly not not necessarily frequently, but that does come up um, is what gets foregrounded in conservative North American um, Christianity, and more specifically for us in a church that's a part of the reformation tradition mm. like what what gets emphasized or valued or held up as a model as a way to uh, follow jesus i have a filter's not the right word but maybe a process by which i follow is by asking one of which is to ask the question is this is this a is this a valid expression of following Jesus, obeying Jesus that's not exclusively like an American or Caucasian or um, DMV area mm. um, uh, mm, way of following Jesus? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the, the I, I can feel the contrast. Yeah. Um, so it's hard to give specific examples, um, but to kind of be vulnerable again to bring it home, um, Sarah is Caucasian, my mm -hmm. wife, and she's um, a white girl from North Carolina, grew up in the foothills of mm -hmm. the Appalachian Mountains, right? And um, 
uh, Christian family, born, raised, mm-hmm. baptized in a Christian family. And so a lot of these things that come very instinctively to her don't for me. Mm-hmm. And so I, to work out how we follow Jesus together, uh, there's, um, I have to sort out a lot of things in my yeah. own heart, especially when I feel uh, like, wow, she's so much more, much more mature than I am. Like, do I, do I just follow? That's my temptation. But then um, I know that I also need to exercise some kind of wisdom mm-hmm. and kind of, um, if not filter, maybe like the sound equipment, adjust the gains and levels yeah. to, to figure out what is important and necessary versus yeah. what is important but not necessary. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm sure if we just gave you three minutes, you could come up with a ton of examples. One thing for me that has stood out in the past, whether it's reading with you, we've had a lot of conversations about this, uh, but other, you know, Asian American brothers and sisters is like the subject of authority that as a Caucasian, I either don't see like just from my white normative background, which you know, a lot of white American tends to be um, suspicious of authority or, you know, very individualistic. Uh, whereas when I read scriptures with my Asian American brothers and sisters, like there's a lot more of like authority. There's, there's a little more weight to authority or more like respect in the practice of authority that like isn't my instinct. And, I'll, and I'm like right there, I'm already seeing, yeah, like, we are coming at this from like two very different yeah. perspectives. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um- which um, I hate to perpetuate a stereotype, uh, uh, and I'm, I'm actually quite not quite sure if it is, but uh, I I think my temperament at least is uh, deferential, mm. which makes um, kind of like tie this back, tie it in, but I'm not trying to like tie it into the Book of Mark, but um, that's what makes reading uh, the Gospels for me in particular sometimes very challenging hmm. uh i uh to, for full transparency i consulted uh dr Magnola because i i've been sympathizing more with the characters that jesus interacts with hmm. than jesus himself as he's hmm. presented i feel like I'm Zacchaeus and too short in stature to be able to really see and be with Jesus through the Gospels. And there's this hedge of tall people of of established teachings about uh, Jesus. Um, but in this maybe my current spiritual state or season in life, I'm looking for a sycamore tree mm. so I can really see Jesus um, in the Gospels yeah. uh, in particular. So maybe you'll be able to see some of that when we get there. But (laughs) uh, I, um, I've been struggling, and Lord willing, you know, in seminary they talk about uh, or principles of interpretation. They talk about a hermeneutical spiral Mm -hmm. of uh, going through different phases to gain a more like a better or accurate understanding of scriptures. Sometimes, well, more most recently, uh, I feel like I'm. I'm scared that I'm spiraling out of control. Mm. So I'm really grateful for this time to yeah. read this slowly together um, and yeah. uh, work things out so yeah. together. Well, we'd love to ha- hear a lot more from you, um, but just want to fast forward a little bit. Uh, so you went to seminary at Westminster. Um, 
spent some time were you in an opc setting for a minute or epc epc that's right um and uh did a couple like internship type uh serving in churches uh but right now you're working back in the marketplace and um you know not really sure what is next for you pursuing ministry but uh really really glad um that you're here and you know i really see a lot of ministry gifts in you and so hope that the Lord will direct your steps whenever that may be. Uh, we'll just be curious, though, here before we get into Mark chapter five. Uh, I've always loved some of our conversations just about boots on the ground, dreams, passions for the church. Uh, what particular passions do you have uh, for for the local church, for for God's people? Yeah. Um, wh- in terms of, say, like vision for... Um, what vision that sounds so like businessy but what i would love to see (laughs) what i would love to see um i've been um is uh kind of uh simple but it helps me when i when i keep it simple for myself is uh is for the church but um in terms of elders deacons and the lay folks for us to live life side by side as partners in the gospel. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there are different words that uh, our church and other churches have used to describe that community, hospitality, um, uh, certainly a faithful understanding of the gospel itself. But this um, this living life together, uh, it seems to be... Um, probably the most difficult part, but it seems like from the Gospels and all of Paul's exhortations um, to uh, live life together, we probably don't have time to go through what that looks like, but it seems like that is particularly hard in Mm -hmm. our setting. And so uh, the fellowship that we have in union with Christ, where we all where all of our new lives are sourced from the same person, Jesus himself, like what, like how, how can we live life organically together mm-hmm. when we're, when we are suffering, uh, when, uh, when for whatever reasons, uh, where we uh, can rejoice together, where we can also pick up the phone and say, Hey, I'm going to do a grocery store run. Would you like to come with me and spend yeah. those times? together uh, understanding people are in different seasons of life but um but to to i think that that's slogan um captures uh what i imagine living as a family of god could look like yeah Um, one of the things that you know i I first heard this in a church plant that me and i were part of for a few years but um the idea of being a group of people whose life together can only be explained by the gospel. Um, that's like one particular way I, that really resonates with me of like, does our life together reflect a life that can only be explained by the gospel? Yeah. Um, and that's could take a long, you could unpack that for a long, long time. But yeah. uh, anyways, thank you, Howard, for sharing. Love your heart. Um, and uh, if you're listening, you haven't gotten to know the Quatches yet. Uh, hope you will, although it's really hard right now. But uh Good people. So love you all. Glad you're here. So uh, anyways, let's get into Mark chapter five here and Becca can finally jump in. (laughs) Um, So let's start talking about Mark chapter five. Uh, 
Mark chapter five coming on the heels of the end of chapter four, obviously, uh, where we were introduced kind of the first of these, this series of miracle uh, accounts. So there was the calming of the storm. And now you kind of have three more in sequence here. You have the, uh, this exorcism of the legion um, in verses one to 20 of, uh, of Mark five. And then from 21 to the end, you have another Mark and sandwich that we've been seeing in Mark, which uh, again is not unique to him, but he seems to employ it perhaps more frequently than other gospel writers. Um, and uh, so we see there Jairus's daughter and uh, the woman with the hemorrhage. So a lot of good stuff for us to be talking about. Let's start talking about this demoniac and um, the pigs and all of that. And would be curious to hear from you guys uh, some things that jump out to you uh, from this section or what you discovered in your studies on this section. Uh, a couple things, you know, just setting the tone. Uh, I think we're really, really led to believe that this, whatever's going on with this man is really something fierce, like something very frightening. Um, he is a terror, not only to others, but also to himself. Um, we see in verse three, uh, in the Greek, there's a triple negative. <laughs> so not even by chains could anyone uh, any longer restrain him is, you know, so this real emphasis of he cannot be restrained at all. Living among the tombs, wreaking havoc uh, on himself day and night. And, you know, just reading it and thinking about that description more, the first thing that popped in my mind is Gollum, right, from Lord of the Rings. And I had to wonder, like, is this where Tolkien got his inspiration for, like, wretchedness taken to its, like, far, most farthest gone conclusion? Because I think this is probably one of the strongest descriptions of darkness, wretchedness, lostness, right, that we have um, in the scripture. So very, very striking. Um, so we'd be curious, let's let's hear from you, Becca, like maybe a couple things that jumped out to you in the narrative or a couple things that popped out to you um, in your studies on yeah. this chapter. Um, well, I think they build off of what you were saying of how awful this man's situation is and what just throughout really the whole chapter, but especially in this story, um, we just see that Jesus has come to enter into this man's pain and to into all these really unclean, dirty places where everybody else is like given up or runs away from. Um, and so the man, he has an unclean spirit within him, but then he's also living in the tombs in a place that is dirty defiles him with the dead um surround he's in a gentile country he's um right people are working with pigs which were also considered unclean so it's just and jesus comes and he he doesn't just like stay far away and like heal or make it all clean and better he comes and he comes close and he interacts with him and he's that's like that's what he's come to do is to take yeah. on all of that yeah yeah, I really appreciate you bringing that out. I kind of get like just chills now hearing you say it, but also just thinking on it more. You know, we've talked about in Mark this theme of outsider and like this is about as outside as it gets. If you're a Jewish, you know, first century Jewish reader reading this, like there is not no more outside than this man. Um, it's filled with uncleanliness, like you said, and, you know, some Old Testament background there. You know, you read Numbers 19 talks about uh being defiled and unclean from dead bodies, you know, living among the dead bodies. He's there's the pigs. There's, um, yeah, all of this just being Gentile country, all of that being unclean, uh, here in the story. And yet Jesus, uh, enters into it. So, uh, um, Howard, you have anything to add to that? Just kind of like background insights on, um, this man or the situation 
not so much background, but I have here written, jotted down was uh, what a sad scene. Yeah. Um, the uh, the the vivid details, plural, uh, yeah. Mark provides there. Uh, I was just really sad, which which then uh, led to uh, this kind of strong reaction from me when later on when he gets healed mm-hmm. he asks jesus a question mm-hmm. and jesus does not give him permission which up to that point up to that period in the, in reading the sentences i uh i was uh kind of shocked mm-hmm. but uh maybe we'll get there yeah but, yeah well a couple other things uh i want to get to this idea of legion and really what is being brought out here with, with that. Um, a couple of interesting things going on in the dialogue that I think are worth noting here. Um, number one is, uh, you know, we, it says here that, that this man falls down right before Jesus. Um, somebody has a verse on that for me. I, I lost it. Um, verse, uh, uh, verse six. six, verse six, he falls down. And, uh, this, this word here, um, so we talked about in Mark 3, I remember when uh, Charlie and I think Mike were here talking about, you saw uh, a demon, the demons falling before Jesus and calling him the son of God. And the word there in Mark 3.11 was uh, prospipto, which is really more being thrust back, not necessarily fall. That's not, it's not the worship word. Mm-hmm. Well, here it is. Uh, it's proskuneo. So it's falling down in a, in a sense of worship. And so it's hard to say exactly, you know, um, is this the man falling down in worship with what little control he has left? Um, is there a difference? Are the demons doing it? But is there now a sense of reverence? I mean, clearly they're not saved or worshiping him, but is there more sense of reverence from um, the demons? You know, I think it's kind of hard to say and you could go either way, but I think we should see it as perhaps qualitatively different than the being thrust back that we saw in Mark three eleven, right? There's there's a there's a difference here, than, and Mark is using a different word, but I think for me, I, I see maybe it's the man, kind of with what little control he has left of his body, because in the dialogue, um, there's a blend in the dialogue between singular and plural, mm-hmm. and so um, when he first starts addressing the man, it's it's in the singular, but then as soon as like legion starts coming in, it becomes plural and we have you know we and so you have this kind of blend here and uh one commentator brought out something that i thought was really important he said what we see here is another example where the new testament shows us that demon possession is not a psychological problem um but it's a matter of alien occupation there's something from the outside that has come inside this man um something spiritual unnatural other than uh occupying him and so he you know, Jesus maybe perhaps starts the conversation with the man and then begins to direct the, the demons specifically. And then he goes back to speaking to the man once the demons are gone. And so that's for me, you know, this falling down as I'm thinking maybe it's the man is in control of what little what little he has left uh, of control. He falls down, um, you know, before Jesus. So uh, anyways, uh, you have this uh, response. um you know, the, what do you have to do with us, the most high God? Uh, and you know, he says, come out of the man in verse eight, you unclean spirit. What is your name in verse nine? 
And the man replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Um, what do you all think is going on there? Uh, Becca, I'll start with you again. What, do you, what is going on there with Legion? Whenever I hear that, I hear it in that like alien voice, you know, like, we are Legion. Yeah. But <laughs> it's, it's creepy, kind of. But um, I mean, I, what's going on? It's powerful and it's dark. Um, I think, yeah, this just was a reminder to me that Jesus came to wage war um, and there's this spiritual warfare going on. And, um, but at the same time, they, these demons, they know who Jesus is um, in a way that a lot of the people don't seem to. And here they're just, all they can do is beg to be like, to have mercy shown to them. And yeah. so like he's come to wage this war and to a lot of people, it doesn't look like what they would think it would look like. He doesn't look all powerful and mighty. And yet the very ones that even if their numbers are strong, right, this one man um, was able to just with a word um, expel them, mm-hmm. get rid of them. Um, yeah. Howard, do you have anything you want to add to that with Legion? Uh, Legion being, of course, a word that would have been associated with a large Roman battalion, um, I saw deferring numbers, but somewhere in the range of maybe 5,600 to 6,000 soldiers. I don't think we're led to think exact, you know, but just it's it's big. It's big. It's a big army of demons that have occupied this man, um, which is just it's wild to uh, think about and reminds me of Howard, what you said last time you were here, just about I don't remember how you said it, but really just our spiritual senses aren't very strong and we don't think often about this sort of thing. Um, And I can't say that I've seen a lot in ministry that I could say is demonic or demonic possession, Um, save for one or two things that, you know, in my orbit of pastoral work, I've seen or heard from another minister where really if you're open to the to the dark spiritual world still being at work um seeing some things that are really can only be described by being demonic um so why did the demons not want to be sent out from the area howard do you have any thought on that why didn't they want to be sent out of the area that's a good question (laughs) Uh, i definitely asked that question what is it about this area like they don't like it seems like they had a um a good host, right? <laughs> um, which is kind of sad. Uh, speaking of the host, how uh, the people, like, it seemed like the community in which he lived, like, didn't know what to do with him. Yeah. Um, they just shat, like, they just put him, like, yeah, put him away um, yeah. outside of, like, normal society. So, sounds like it's, it was pretty bad. Um, uh, possibly because um, the, demons don't um they 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 don't just float around like they they need to be embodied somewhere in something um what is it about that particular region um not quite sure other than it being pagan yeah point um yeah becca anything to add no yeah uh i it's one of these things. It's kind of hard to say. Uh, a couple of commentators I was reading, one said um, that there was a Jewish belief at the time that 
demons did operate by region. And so this could be like playing into that idea. Uh, it could also be, I think, Howard, you were kind of getting that, at this set. So this probably would have been the region of, um, I think uh, commentators were saying, like probably northeast of the sea, uh, being a, a Greek decapolis there. Uh, so a real hub of Hellenistic pagan culture. And so perhaps it's that this particular region is heavily occupied by demonic forces, a lot of demonic activity there, and not wanting to leave, right, where it darkness is so strong there. Um, so not really quite sure, but uh, we do know they ask for mercy, and the mercy they ask for uh, is to be sent into the pigs, which is strange. Um, so why, why do the demons want to do that? And uh, what led... What drove the pigs off the cliff? Here's another big question is, was it the demons that drove the pigs off the cliff? And if so, why? Or was it the pigs who couldn't stand the torment of the demons who would rather die than be tormented and, and drove themselves off the cliff? Do either of you have any thoughts on the pigs here? It's hard to discern swine motivation, <laughs> uh, heart issues of the swine. Um, but uh, I did... So I did find something interesting here um, in one of the commentaries. Uh-huh. Uh, it's, uh, here he writes, uh, the deep antipathy toward uh, these animals uh, has nothing to do with the biblical injunction against eating pork, right? Found in the Levitical laws. Mm-hmm. In first century Palestine, swine's flesh was associated with the brutal persecution of Jews by pagans who wanted to eradicate peculiar Jewish practices. So based on 1st Maccabees, right, um, the, um, the, one of the books that's uh, part of the, what we call part of the Apocrypha mm-hmm. during, the in, during the intertestamental period between Old mm-hmm. and New Testaments, um, there's a lot of history that gets captured um, mm-hmm. in those books. Uh, in 1st Maccabees 6 and 7, it poignantly describes the gallantry of those who endured extreme torture and refused to compromise their faith, their Jewish faith, when forced to eat swine's flesh, a symbolic rejection of the religion of their fathers. Swine, therefore, were indelible reminders of paganism and persecution. So, So therefore, on hearing this account, Jews would have... Jews would have hailed the swine's destruction as a token of God's ultimate vindication over mm-hmm. the powers of oppression. So mm-hmm. the there's like the spiritual side, but then it's that comment of it being a like a political or you know mm-hmm. to move from political in theory to like the political impact of day to day life of real people. Um, seemed like it was both a spiritual oppression and a comment on their actual day-to-day lives of being oppressed by a foreign nation mm. when when the people as a whole were longing to live under God's rule in God's place mm. uh, as I, what I suspect to be a sovereign uh, nation. Yeah. So yeah. it might be a political yeah. picture too. But Becca, you have any thoughts on pigs? Uh, they they confuse me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, another thing that jumped out 
in looking at that more though is you know just our i think our 21st century sensibilities say like that's that's a lot of animals who had to die unnecessarily <laughs> like poor like poor pigs yeah. right and mark just jesus seems very unconcerned with the loss of animal life mm-hmm. in comparison to the saving of this mm-hmm. one man Amen. and i'm not trying to make any kind of point about uh being a carnivore or like i absolutely believe in stewarding the creation but in terms of what it what it would what would be required to save this one man uh mm-hmm. for jesus to redeem this one man was more important than the loss of the 2000 pigs uh and not even just the loss of their life but then uh the livelihood of the right. of the herders right. right was now gone and even that was inconsequential uh to the redemption of this one man uh, and so i think that's something that we can concretely say I hear about mm-hmm. the pigs. Um, so one of the repeated motifs here that we kind of see in end of Mark chapter four, going into Mark chapter five, is this: is there's fear, right? So the disciples were afraid um, of the storm, and then they were afraid once they realized that Jesus could calm the storm at the end of Mark chapter four. Uh, here we have um, the demon, co- you know, comes and bows down in fear mm-hmm. of Jesus, but then when he's restored, so the people go away to the city, right? The herders and they come back. The man is now restored, and we get this. We get another picture of discipleship for Mark. Which, if you remember, if you've been listening, we've been saying discipleship for Mark is being with Jesus. It's this repeated idea of being with. He appointed the twelve to be with him. We had uh, the people who were sitting at his feet with him, in contrast to his family who were outside uh, looking for him. So this is a repeated idea of with him. And here we have uh, towards the end. I think it's maybe verse seventeen. Um, uh, sorry, uh, sorry, verse 15, he was clothed and in his right mind, um, sitting with Jesus, right? And so, uh, we have another picture of Mark and discipleship, but, um, so they come back and now they're afraid, right? Now they're afraid The the herders are afraid and they want, they want Jesus to leave, um, leave the region. So uh, why do you guys think, you know, we've seen Jesus um, kind of commanding the silence uh, throughout the book of Mark, you know, saying, don't go and tell anyone, but here he actually gives permission to the demoniac uh, to go and to go and say, talk about what, what happened to him. Why? Any thoughts on why that is? Why the difference? Becca, do you have any thoughts on that? Um. Well, one of my thoughts is that because of um, their fear, mm-hmm. they're begging Jesus to leave, and he's he's going to leave. And so now this man, he's sending back to spread his message and his word. Um, so Jesus is not going to be performing his works of mercy there, but he is sending somebody else mm-hmm. to share it. Um, I don't know if that's why for sure, but... Yeah, and it seems like he... Uh, has a fuller, maybe a fuller understanding. Because mm. we've been saying maybe part of that mark in secrecy is Jesus doesn't want to be known as just a simple miracle worker or as a simple prophet, but as one who redeems and restores, right? Totally. Mm-hmm. And perhaps this man, to the extent that he was so far gone, who has now been restored, has really maybe perhaps for the first time in Mark a truer and fuller sense of who he is. Like, really. You know, what it really means that he is the son of God. Mm-hmm. Uh, perhaps he's the first one in, in Mark to, to really get it. 
Um, yeah. you know, so maybe that's part of it because, um, you know, Jesus says, uh, at the end here, he says, go and tell how much the Lord has done for you. And then it says that he goes and tells how much Jesus, um, had done for him. Mm-hmm. Right. And so for the man, they were one and the same. Uh, and so maybe he has this fuller picture. Howard, I think to add to that. The, um, the, the gospels, um, maybe even the whole New Testament, one of the most frequently cited um, Old Testament books is Isaiah. And uh, Isaiah has a, like an array of pictures that shape the, um, the people's expectations of God coming back himself personally, God's anointed one, Messiah, um, the Son of God, the servant, right? All these, all these different um, descriptions, poetic descriptions of what people can expect for their God to save them. Mm. One of those, um, one of those passages is Isaiah 42, verse 5 to 7, which I think captures this um, picture with the um, with the exorcism right uh, it says verse five to seven says i am the lord i have called you his chosen servant in righteousness i will take you by the hand and keep you uh, i will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon from the prison, those who sit in darkness. Mm. Um, uh, you know, if if not a direct citation of Isaiah forty-two, um, maybe some echo or allusion yeah. to that. In that, here, what you just said, Ben, a fuller understanding, and yet it's still a part of Jesus' mission as Yahweh's chosen servant to be a light right now in one of the most darkest places Mm -hmm. right and to start like turning the dial up on the dimmer uh, with this um with this miracle Mm -hmm. uh so i think yeah in contrast with the secrecy right um with the jew uh, with uh, the other folks um he's not just on he jesus isn't just on a mission to show his power he then is he then is also eventually going to make his way to suffer and die. So he's still um, he's still on a particular path, and mm. a part of that path is to be a light mm. to the nations. Yeah, that's good. Uh, well, we got to move on to um, Jairus's daughter and this woman with the hemorrhage, but uh, never never want to miss an opportunity to recommend a good book. Uh, and so, uh, reading this story, just I can't help but think of. Uh, a book that we had been recommending recently in the church um, by uh, Dr. Randy Newman. It's called Unlikely Converts, and uh, it's a great book on evangelism, and he shares a lot of good stories there. And one of the stories that he shares in the book is about a man who um, uh, was really drawn to the faith by this story, and in particular, the pigs. And what you read early on in the book is that he was drawn in when he first studied that chapter it was it was when he was a non-christian in a group of christians but he felt safe to ask questions because he didn't understand like what was going on and that drew him in but then 
years later, uh, Dr. Newman met him again to follow up with him. And, and the man said, you know, like, yes, initially it was, that I was, it was a safe place to ask questions that drew me in. But I've now realized years later that there was something else about the story that drew me in. And, you know, so Dr. Newman says, well, what is that? And this guy says, well, it's because I, I was the demoniac. And he said, my, my life was filled with self-hate and I was doing all sorts of terrible things to myself and to others. Um, and so I didn't, I couldn't see it at the time, but it drew me in because I, I was that man, right? I was the man who, uh, was like that. And it, that, I think that's a really powerful story. And I think this story in particular, um, uh, is one of, uh, the beautiful passages that can really speak to those who, um, are filled with a lot of shame, uh, self-hate, perhaps even being driven to, to self-harm, um, and showing that, you know, Jesus comes, and we're going to certainly see this in the next two accounts here, he comes not just to save us from our sin, uh, but to heal us from our shame. And uh, there's some other great passage, you know, and we see what, um, apart from Christ, we can be driven to this self-hatred, self-harm. Uh, you see something similar in um, 1 Kings 17 to 19, right? Where Elijah uh, is um, encountering the prophets of Baal and they're trying to manipulate their gods through self-harm. Um, so I think, you know, it's another passage like this, but really seeing that Jesus doesn't just uh, save us, but he redeems and restores. And there's a powerful image here, I think, for those in our culture today who are really struggling with shame, perhaps even to this level of self-hatred and, and self-harm. So uh, really, really powerful account here and showing Jesus's willingness to enter into that mm. in our lives. So mm. uh, let's move on. Uh, really uh, so much to talk about. <laughs> we spent a lot of good time on the demoniac. So let's try and uh, move through um, Jairus's daughter and the one with the hemorrhage here. Really one of my favorite passages, though. Um, so it's another one of these sandwiches. So I think in uh, Verses 21 to 24 introduces Jairus and Jairus's daughter, which Jairus's daughter is sick. So comes to Jesus wanting to go uh, heal his daughter. And on the way to heal the daughter, um, Jesus encounters this woman with a hemorrhage. And so we see that that's the middle of the sandwich from uh, second half of 24 through um, 34. And then 35 to uh, 43 goes back to Jairus and his daughter. So let's start with the woman with the hemorrhage first. A um, couple of quick connections here in the sandwich that Mark is drawing, you know, in both stories, uh, the women are referred to as daughter. So one is actually Jairus's daughter. Uh, and then in the woman with the hemorrhage, Jesus calls her daughter, right? So we kind of have that connection there. We also have the, the length of the woman's illness is 12 years and the daughter is 12 years, right? So you have these kind of uh, connections. In both cases, uh, you know, he's met with rebuke. He shows himself willing to be near those who are unclean, you know, so the woman with the discharge uh, would have been unclean, similar to the demoniac. Of course, the girl who's dead would have been unclean. So there's a tenderness here that we see associated with uh, associated with Jesus, and he's willing to take on the rebuke um, to enter into and be tender to those who who need them so um becca other insights just on maybe the attentive care of jesus here what maybe jumps out to you in particular about his tenderness here and how he cares for the woman yeah well i think 
just the fact that it comes kind of like as an interruption to where mm-hmm. he's already on a on a mission to go heal someone else is just that he uh he's willing to be interrupted and he's um got time <laughs> for for everyone who comes to him in faith um but i think um we see uh, just i guess that jesus doesn't just like the woman reaches out in faith um without telling him anything right from behind and she is healed and so she he's has already provided physical healing for her but then he turns around and he pursues her mm. um and he wants that face to face that idea of this discipleship is being with jesus in mm. his presence together and that's what right she's she's gotten the physical healing she wants but now he turns around and he wants to just be with her mm. and to be in relationship with her face to face yeah yeah and so yeah he, he could have stopped at the he could have just kept on going mm-hmm. but instead he he made a pronouncement to her at the end mm-hmm. right like a pronouncement of her faith yeah uh yeah that's good um and the woman here certainly just like the demoniac and you know uh the Jairus's daughter she's dead right so we know her her state but this woman is really described as in a, being a real real predicament um the word for her condition that we see in verse 29 uh i think just in the ESV, it just says disease, but it's a word that could also mean uh, scourging or torment or lashing. Um, so it's a term that combines physical suffering and shame. Um, and then, of course, we also have this uh, repeated emphasis on uh, having a blood flow, having suffered from many doctors, having exhausted all her wealth, having not improved, but having gotten worse. Um, she suffered much from many physicians, exhausted all her resources and gained nothing. And so, and all, I mean, she's breathing, but is she really better off than Jairus's dead daughter from, uh, from a, not just a religious ceremonial sense, but even from a social sense, uh, from a quality of life. Like, I mean, she's at, like, she's at the end, mm-hmm. right. And Jesus enters into it. Um, so very, very tender that he um, comes out to her. So, Howard, what do you think we learn about Jesus's agenda in light of this? Uh, Becca kind of brought it out a little bit that, you know, he doesn't see her as an interruption. But what do you think we maybe learn about his mission or his agenda here from the healing of this woman? Uh, the, um, the, the connection that you've brought out, which I've like come to discover this fun little word, uh, one of the mark and toothpicks for the sandwich, uh, uh, is um, like, is that this woman uh, ought to be based on the way Mark presented, ought to be contrasted and compared with Jairus, mm. who's on the other end of the social economic right. spectrum, and that um, based on where she's at, destitute and desperate. Right. Mm. Um, you have Jairus who's not necessarily destitute, but yet desperate. Mm. Um, it, it seems like there's a, his a, agenda is to reach out to those who, again, are, it doesn't matter like where you are um, socioeconomically uh, when you're desperate, blessed are the poor in spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and that uh, and that he will make it's not just transactional right his agenda is not just to um, not not just to deliver but is to deliver and for you to be known that's right, right. for him to know and for you to be known uh, and it must have like it must have been really difficult I imagine for well I guess I don't have to imagine like the, the text says that she was a like she was afraid right yeah. after she was healed right and for her to be publicly like in, like, in, like interacted with uh, wow it is not merely transactional it's personal personal and risky mm. right um, socially speaking um, so uh I still wonder what Jesus' agenda is um, uh, for that kind of interaction, but I just, I need to remind myself that my faith is not, it's personal, Hmm. but never just private. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, This passage always reminds me of uh, a sermon that I heard maybe six years ago now goodness uh time flies at one of the together for the gospel conferences um by uh ligan duncan who's uh chancellor president of the reformed theological seminaries i would encourage if you're listening to this want to want to hear it you can um i'm sure if you if you youtube uh ligan duncan numbers together for the gospel it'll pop up but it was a sermon on numbers that he connected here with um this woman and he was in a passage in numbers that dealt with things like hemorrhages and discharges that would that would cause you to be put outside the camp. And of course, to be put outside the camp in the wilderness was to be exposed, mm-hmm. subject to danger. Um, you know, if your family member is in the wilderness, <laughs> if they haven't put outside the camp as a family, you're wondering, like, am I ever going to see them again? Is something going to happen to them? There was this fear. Um, and so, you know, this woman being unclean, having these, um, uh, this discharge from an old Testament perspective is someone who was regarded as being outside the camp. Right. But Ligon just masterfully, when he connects us, he says, you know, we need to trust that when we come to Jesus or when we bring, when we bring someone else to Jesus, that he knows what to do with them Mm. and he knows how to enter into their life and to heal them and restore them. And, you know, so you just see, you know, of course, uh, if you've been studying the Bible, studying the Gospels for any length of time, then you know that you know in all these events, what was expected was that maybe maybe Jesus could make this person clean again, but he ought to have been made unclean, mm-hmm. right? And yet, what we have time and time again is that he can enter into uncleanliness, heal and restore, and doesn't become in any way um, like us. Doesn't become in any way unclean, you know, um, tainted by by that. Um, but what's interesting thinking about that though is that it does say that power went out from him which i think is a really interesting phrase and kind of another one of these things where we can kind of take our best guess at this and um but i think it kind of gets at what both of you have said already which is i think the woman perhaps was expecting a secret one-way transaction that i could just touch him and it'll be over and i could then I, I could be healed and then i could just like go on my way but discovers that like there's no one-way transaction with Jesus, right? And you know, you can't just come to him and be saved and be done. 
it's two way, right? So she thinks she's going to get like one way and maybe back off. And instead, what she finds is she enters into a two way transaction because he knows she touches him and he knows now that she's she's come to him. And so what she thought was going to be maybe quick and easy in one way, and then she could disappear again. He says, "Oh no! Now now that you're here, right? You're mine, right? And now now like I'm with you, and you're and you're with me." And I think that seems to be at least what's going on is just a recognition. I mean, it's a unique phrase. It's the only time we see it is here. Um, so hard to say exactly. Um, you know, it's not. I, I don't think we could say it anyway that he lost power. Mm-hmm. Um, that that can't be. Uh, but that he knew that it had gone out from him and entered into now this relationship um, with her. So uh, last question just on on this one with the hemorrhage real quick is, yeah, we see that she's afraid, right? And uh, where else have we seen fear, you know, in these last couple of narratives? And maybe is there a difference in her fear than what we saw with the disciples or even with the swine herders? Becca, what do you think? Yeah, um, I think there's a big difference just because the disciples – um, we're afraid when Jesus calmed the storm and questioning, like who, who could do this? Who is this? Um, and then after healing, uh, the demon possessed man, all of those people are afraid and their fear pushes him away. And yet she's afraid. Um, but her fear doesn't drive her away. Her fear brings her to her knees and draws her back. Um, so she's reasonably afraid. She knows his power. Um, but she also knows her um yeah she she's been healed she's experienced his mercy and his grace already and so this fear instead she still steps forward in faith yeah Um, yeah and i do think um you know howard you made this point earlier and she so the woman steps forward in, in faith becca like you said and now i think um in the remainder of this narrative with jairus's daughter um she is the model of faith for Jairus, right? So here we have the man who is not destitute, who's well off in society, and here, and then this other woman on the complete opposite, who really has now become the model uh, for for Jairus, for the family, for the people of like this is what this is what faith um, looks like. And yes, there's fear, but there's also a genuine trust and faith um, and love here from this woman. Um, so let's let's take a look here at the close of the chapter with. Um, Jairus and the daughter, and let me just set the backdrop a little bit here. So uh, now a woman has been healed, but some people come. Um, I think it's in um, verse uh, 35. Some people from the uh, Jairus's house come and say, well, she she's died now. And uh, they say, so, so why bother the teacher anymore? That's a really sad phrase, right? Um, verse 35, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher? anymore um one commentator james edwards uh i thought really had a good just it really jumped out to me i wanted to read this quote he said the interruption so profitable to the woman has cost the life of jairus's daughter hope is now lost and the inevitable conclusion follows why bother the teacher anymore the remainder of the story swings like the pendulum of a clock between the extremes of human despair and divine possibility i love that (laughs) The story swings like the pendulum of a clock between the extremes of human despair and divine possibility. And certainly from human despair, uh, Jesus comes to the house. I didn't know this before. Uh, I didn't know that the, the ones who were mourning were professional mourners. I didn't realize that, that was like a thing. Uh, I guess it's a guild. There was a, 
a guild and it was required even the poorest um even the poorest of jewish believers were required to have two flute players like present at the funeral and like during the mourning process and so who we see here is these professional mourners who come to weep and to wail and to mourn uh and so because the professionals are there that's the that's the pronouncement of dead hope is lost like it's done it's time for us to move on right that's sort of like the the message of the narrative and Jesus is entering into that scene right that scene where hope is lost um but there's divine possibility because Jesus has come right so that's kind of the context of this um Howard what do you think is at play here in uh and Jairus as a character do you think we see Jairus in any way displaying genuine faith through this narrative uh especially here at the end why why or why not um he certainly seems desperate enough yeah to to trust Jesus um in what he's doing right like uh because Jesus invites him mm-hmm. into um the more intimate setting with the three apostles and you know something special is going to happen um so he didn't Jairus didn't stop he didn't merely listen to the professional mourners or whoever kind of expressed that despair but he seemed desperate enough to still follow Jesus yeah yeah when he says in um Verse 36, do not fear, only believe. Well, again, how is he supposed to believe? <laughs> like the like the woman. Yeah. Right? Like the one with the hemorrhage. Like I, you know, it's another way of saying you should know all things are possible. Yeah. Right? Um so it yeah. seems, you know, I guess we don't really we don't really find out if he if he did. Um I would like to think so, especially after mm-hmm. seeing the daughter healed and that maybe one day we'll all meet Jairus in the <laughs> in the new heavens and new earth um I, I kind of imagine Jesus saying well uh you came to me and I'm here yeah like s- s- um stay with me mm-hmm. like let me show you keep keep you know keep coming along <laughs> mm-hmm. um Becca what do you think it means when he says in uh you know the people laughed at him he says, why in verse 39, he, Jesus said, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. What do you think it means that she was dead, but not asleep? Well, or, or, not asleep, but yeah. Yeah. Not dead, but asleep. There you go. Dead, what do you think it means asleep. that she's not dead, but asleep? Um, well, I think it ties directly into this idea of not if having faith in the desperate and so it's not that she's not actually dead that she's just like really deeply asleep she she was dead but with jesus there that dead is not it's not the end there's the hope of if you're just asleep you're gonna wake up again and so she's gonna rise again um i think that's what he's emphasizing yeah and it seems like at least um i absolutely agree and it seems like um I don't know if Paul is picking up on this idea in First Thessalonians four, or if this just kind of becomes the widespread a widespread notion in the early church of how to conceive of those who have died in the Lord. But in First Thessalonians four, he refers to those 
who have died in the Lord as those who have fallen asleep. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, I think that that's the reassurance that we have is like this, this is not the end, right? Those who fall asleep, those who die in the Lord are not truly dead. They have fallen asleep and there one day will be, it'll, it'll rise again, right? New bodies, new heavens, new earth. Um, and so it's a momentary, momentary sleep. One day we will rise again with the Lord. And we certainly have a picture of that here. And we have this um, sweet tenderness of um, the Lord to this girl and to this family. Um, I want to move on just for a couple of quick words of application. But maybe, Howard, do you have anything you want to add to um, the story with Jairus and the daughter? Or maybe if you want to move into what what do you think? How do we respond now after reading the demoniac and woman with a hemorrhage, Jairus, his daughter? How do we respond to this? Yeah, uh, for for the characters in the story, uh, they witness they witnessed um, the power and authority of Jesus over evil, sickness, and even death. Right, things we all experience today today still. And I wonder if um, if Jesus's words. Um, do not fear, only believe is an ongoing mm-hmm. like saying of Jesus, comfort and encouragement of Jesus for us today um, based on the the characters that, um, that have witnessed these things. However, the disciples, the 12 who were called to be with Jesus through these things, um, I'm trying to put myself in their shoes right now. Uh, how do they respond? Right? Because I think that's maybe a tighter correlation to, uh, like for us as disciples mm-hmm. now. And when I look at least at the next chapter, um, they, they are certainly emboldened to cast out demons, mm. but they still don't really get what Jesus says right? in verse uh, chapter 637. Um, Jesus tells them to give the, I think the 5,000 uh, something to eat. And then they ask, they said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give them to eat? And then, Further down in verse 51, I'll just say this to not give too many spoilers for the next uh, episode, is that their hearts were hardened, Mm. the disciples. And so at this point in the story, um, as a disciple, I'm thinking, wow, this book is feels like it's more of a book on discipleship Mm -hmm. and that. Uh, there is some. There is a process that they go through, um, which I think will feel that that shift later on in the book. And so um, I'm still holding on to like uh, to the narrative, uh, but I can at least for sure have the words in verse um, uh, chapter five thirty six continue to ring true. Do not be afraid. Um, only believe or keep on believing. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you said there. Um, Mark seems to be a, really be a book on discipleship. 
And uh, I don't think that's some, you know, last time I went through this was a couple of years ago, like really in depth and just wasn't something that jumped out to me the same way that it does mm. now. And I just wonder if that's just the Lord, like in the season of life, impressing that upon me, you know, going all the way back to Mark chapter three, when he appoints the 12 to be with him. Like, I never, mm. and all of a sudden now I'm like seeing everything in Mark, like kind of through that of like, mm. I want to be with him. You know, there's just this repeated emphasis of being with him. Becca, what do you think? Um, whether, you know, the disciples then or just now as disciples, what ought to be our response at the end of chapter five? Yeah, well, I think hopefully the disciples got a bigger picture of this than they had before, although they still certainly had room to grow. But um, for me, it was just a great, great reminder of um just not not to live in fear and that mm-hmm. um, all of these all of these stories were just desperate seemingly hopeless situations mm-hmm. um, and Jesus is not only all-powerful and he doesn't come with this amazing power that creates fear um, but he also showed himself to be so gentle um, mm-hmm. and so willing to enter into those areas and so it's that balance and that's why we can like not live in fear and why we can just believe in. So, um, for me, that's just what it was a reminder of, um, that I can come or that I can bring others to him and he'll, he'll reach any of those places and he'll do it gently. Yeah. You know, yeah. Thanks for sharing that Becca. Um, I have discovered that reading, you know, reading these narratives in the gospels that, I believe, you know, I believe in the gentleness of Jesus. I believe that he's loving, merciful, all of that. And yet when I read these narratives, I still read it as if Jesus is very stoic. Mm -hmm. Um, I still have a very stoic impression in the narrative itself. Then I go and read, you know, gentle and lowly, whenever I'm like, "Mm, yes, he's gentle and lowly. Then I come back to the narrative and the image in my head is of a very robotic, stoic, um, oh, you touched me. Your faith has made you well. Come, let's go to Jairus's house. Like very monotone, like all that. And I'm trying to do a better job of, of, and, you know, not wanting to break any idolatry, right? Of having an image that I'm setting up, but really trying to hear these words, do not fear, only believe through the tone and the face of a man who is moved with mercy. Mm-hmm and compassion and who has a face of great mercy and compassion and tenderness and understanding, you know, and, uh, that has been harder for me, but a good stretch, uh, to, to see, to, to see that Jesus in the narratives. And, um, so even as a, as a, as a believer, as a Christian, as a pastor, challenging myself, pushing myself, um, to continue to see Jesus really in the way that he is presented in the gospels and not in the way that I at least falsely imagine him as being very stoic and so on. Um, and I think also, so that's personal application for me. And I think, you know, as Becca, as you said, um, having full assurance that when we come to, to Jesus or when we bring others to Jesus, that he knows what to do, um, with us and, Perhaps you could even then you know, go another step further and just say, whatever circumstances might say we, like circumstances would say hope is lost or circumstances would say that that particular outcome 
that you want to happen is impossible. Like nothing is impossible for the Lord, right? And um, I think that's the kind of faith that we are uh, called to, which can be hard because it's very easy to grow cynical. You try and extend that faith once or twice and you don't get the outcome that you wanted. Um, and so you start to get cynical and say, oh, well, the Lord's not going to do miracles in my life. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, do not fear, only believe is, is the command. Um, so... Well, um, Becca and Howard, thank you for being here um, for this conversation. Hope you all who are listening enjoyed this one. Uh, it was a little bit longer, so uh, maybe should have said this at the beginning. But for the future, I hope you know that your podcast app, you can speed it up, which is how I always listen to podcasts, <laughs> is at least one and a half speed. And uh, we are not offended if you choose to do that to our podcast as well. So anyways, I uh, hope you all enjoyed this and uh, look forward to coming back again next week where we will be recording uh, Mark chapter six. So take care. Have a good week, everybody. Thanks. Thanks.